This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. It's me, Stephanie Butnick, joined by my co-host, tablet editor-at-large, Liel Leibovitz. Shalom to you. Today on the show, it's our annual conversion episode. And at the end of this episode, we are going to announce our brand new co-host. Yay! It's going to be quite an episode. Each year around the holiday of Shavuot, we air an episode devoted to the stories of people who found their way to Judaism, who weren't necessarily born Jewish, but had some kind of journey towards becoming Jewish. And so here we are on the eve of Shavuot. And how are you feeling, Liel? First of all, I just love that a people who have a genetic predisposition to not being able to process dairy have an entire holiday in which all we eat is dairy. It's just the most gorgeous thing. So walk us through this holiday, Shavuot. We know dairy, we know Torah, we know conversion. Here's the TLDR version. It is the holiday, 50 days from Passover. We prepare ourselves mentally like a kid counting down the days to her birthday. Here we are counting down the days to having received the Torah, the greatest gift anyone has ever or will ever receive. And on this holiday, not only do we eat blintzes and cheesecake, but we also read the book of Ruth, arguably the greatest heroine story of the entire Hebrew Bible, because it tells the story of an amazing young woman whose husband dies. And unlike her sister-in-law, who's like, see you later, her sister-in-law, by the way, Orpah, who, little known fact, is who Oprah Winfrey is named after, unlike Orpa, who says, okay, later, uh, my brother-in-law died. I'm going to leave my mother-in-law and go back to hang with my folks. Ruth famously says to her mother-in-law, Naomi, wherever you go, I'll go. Your people should be my people. Your God shall be my God. And Ruth comes with Naomi, who is now completely impoverished, back to the promised land. And after a few tough moments, they don't have a lot of money and don't even have a lot to eat. She meets Boaz, a wealthy older man who marries her. And not only that, but helps her become the progenitor, the great mother who eventually gave birth to none other than King David. Also Jesus, if you're into that kind of stuff. But the idea that the greatest Hebrew king would come from someone who is a Jew by choice is so incredibly meaningful. And I think kind of the emotional heart of this year our annual conversion episode. Basically, Ruth really is a stand-in for the idea of people choosing to be Jewish. That's the genesis, if you will, of this episode, which each year we find stories of people who, you know, through both quite exceptional and also quite mundane circumstances, have found their way to being Jewish. And it feels like each year, Liel, we're sort of trying to top the last year's episode, trying to find a story that is so heart-wrenching to sort of show the the lengths that some people have gone to become Jewish. I always find this episode so moving because of precisely that, the way in which we're telling the stories, we're highlighting the stories, first of all, of, of people who don't necessarily always feel welcome in Jewish spaces, right? People who have converted to Judaism and don't necessarily always feel like full citizens of this faith, if you will, to use a, a deeply Christian term. I feel like I come away from this episode each year with just this appreciation for people who want into this thing that I think many of us, including myself, take for granted. I totally, totally agree. And, and look, we love all unorthodox episodes equally, but I think we love this one a little bit more because it feels so moving and meaningful. And I also agree 
that the last couple of years uh, have started to feel a little bit like we're bad Hollywood executives. And you're like, well, we already told the story of a person who converted. How about if they convert while their own mother is dying? And how about like, it, it, it feels a little bit like convert sweeps, you know, like those week of TV ratings measurements in which everyone really brings out the big guns. And so I think this year it behooves us to do something very different. Go a little bit deeper and ask different questions that really need to be asked. And we're doing this in large part because we are schooled and inspired and moved by our dear colleague, this year's show's showrunner, Courtney Hazlett. We really wanted Courtney to come on the show and help us think about this conversion episode better. Hey, Courtney. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So Courtney, just between us, no one else is listening right now. You really have issues with the conversion episode, right? I hate this episode. (laughs) I detest it. First of all, I want to say that I do appreciate all the people who've written in, all the people who've called in, all the people who haven't written or called but still feel that this is really important to hear people in that space and hearing these stories lets you know that there are people who've gone through this journey as well. I appreciate that. However, I'm here to tell you And if you don't believe me now, believe me later. Conversion, as we've put it, is a very liminal space. Conversion is the actual practice of moving from one space that you were born into, believed in, no longer believe in, whatever it is, to this space of Judaism. Once you are halakhically Jewish, guess what? You're just Jewish. And I think what comes after that point is so much deeper and oftentimes so much messier and so much more difficult that just by saying, okay, I'm a convert and remembering the welcome home all the time. Yeah, the welcome home's great, but once you're home, guess what? Now you gotta live there. Once you're there, you got, you know, it's your turn to do the dishes. Now you famously wrote an essay expressing this exact point for Tablet Magazine, the headline of which was, Don't call me a convert. (laughs) I understand that people do it with such affection. And Stephanie, you were saying that part of the reason you want to put a spotlight on this is because Yes, we chose Judaism in some way, but I think that a lot of people who decide to become halakhically Jewish at different points in their life, it wasn't a choice. It's such a calling and it's such a pull. There almost is no choice. I would love to talk to Ruth and say, did this feel like a choice to you? Or was it, obviously this is my path. Courtney, I mean, I've heard you do this before and you've done this on the show. You refer to this becoming halakhically Jewish. You don't even use the word converting. And I find that such a good way of thinking about this. I mean, to me, the idea that someone wants in or has to get in, like we're this strange nightclub and it is hard to get in. And there's a lot inside. (laughs) There's a lot of baggage. The struggle, the hardship, the prejudice that feels so laden in a Jewish identity and for people to opt in is so unbelievable. And it's so amazing. And it's such a good reminder to those of us for whom it can be something that's almost an afterthought in our lives to say, wait, hey, people really work for this. They work through the process of becoming halakhically Jewish, which is at least a year long, right? It's often a years long process to get into the club. And so it's like, okay, now I'm here. What am I going to do? I'm sorry. I, I, I just... I'm sorry. Are you thinking Stefan too? I, I'm like, so thinking Stefan right now. I'm like, humanity's new club. New York's hottest club is twice. <laughs> Don't be thrown off when you're greeted at the door by a rabbi that looks like Joaquin Phoenix. You're in the right place. 
it has gastric issues. It has <laughs> it, Torah. It has, it has intermittent fasting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But what you don't want when you walk into New York's hottest club is that you feel like everyone's looking at you saying, this is the first time you've been to the club. And that was one of my core issues with the word convert. When I met with my rabbi, and I know it rolls off the tongue to talk about becoming halakhically Jewish. <laughs> I remember we were walking out the door and like every journalist knows that last question is always the best question. He said, do you have anything else for me? And I turned around and I said, will I ever be considered Jewish enough? And I started crying. And I realized that was my fear. It wasn't in telling my parents, which is a fear a lot of people have and deal with for years after. It wasn't in what's going to happen with my family, my immediate family. It was Am I going to be that person that everyone says, oh, well, you just learned how to say baruch, you know, <laughs> or you just, you just learned that what, what this holiday is. About. I was, it was a scarlet letter fear that I had. Again, there are always exceptions to the rule. There are people who want you to know I worked for this. And you know what? I don't, I don't besmirch that. I like, great. If that's your comfort zone, fine. But surveying many, many spaces in which there are people who became halakhically Jewish later in life, I would say the overwhelming majority, once they start doing Jewish, they don't want to have that label for the rest of their life. Because you know what? They're making Shabbat dinners too. They're getting into arguments with their kid about what they're doing on Friday night. They are trying to do a Seder and it's uncomfortable and it's awkward. They're just doing Jewish too. And we're all constantly learning how to do Jewish. The converts in the background. So Courtney, I love and appreciate this schooling, this very necessary reminder, because as you'll hear a little bit later on in the podcast, it's something that I, born Jew, struggle with a lot as well. And, you know, I really have come to believe that in a sense, we all convert to Judaism like every day in choosing to do this really, really hard thing. But I want to take the spirit of your comment very, very seriously and dedicate this year's annual conversion episode to asking a different set of questions. Liel, that is exactly right. And to honor everything Courtney has just said and to really respond to the challenge she's putting to us, we decided to reframe this year's episode entirely. So this year we're looking at journeys, the journeys we're all on together. What you hear today might surprise you because it's not what we've done in the past. The thesis of this episode really is that we're all making choices every single day about how we live our Jewish lives. It's a constant evolution for all of us, regardless of halachic status. To start us on our journey, we're going to look at interfaith relationships and what we can all learn from them. Then we'll hear from someone who lives a deeply Jewish life, but isn't halakhically Jewish. Then we'll explore something a bit closer to home, which is what it looks like when one member of a Jewish couple starts getting much more religious. And finally, we revisit a listener letter from an aspirational Jew who's wondering when in the conversion process she will finally be able to consider herself Jewish enough. And spoiler alert, as you'll hear throughout this episode, pretty much every Jew grapples with that very question. This episode is a celebration of how we're all sort of converting all the time, choosing each day to live a Jewish life, to embody Jewish values, whatever that might look like to you. This Shavuot, we're exploring the journey that every one of us is on as individuals and as a community. And so let's get started on that journey together.
Our first guest today is Dr. Karen McGinnity. She's the interfaith specialist at the United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism and a research associate at the Hadassah Brandeis Institute. She spends a lot of time consulting with Jewish clergy and congregations, talking about interfaith inclusion and Jewish engagement. She also has written Still Jewish, a history of women and intermarriage in America and marrying out Jewish men, intermarriage, and fatherhood. We wanted Dr. McGinnity to help us recast how we look at these relationships instead of being so terrified by interfaith relationships, actually trying to understand them and understand and appreciate what people in them are going through and working through. Dr. McGinnity, welcome to Unorthodox. Thanks so much for having me. So let's jump right in. You could still walk into any number of mainstream congregations in this country and hear a very well-meaning rabbi give a speech saying something along the lines of X percent of American Jews intermarry. We are losing them. They are lost to the Jewish people. This is something akin to, and this is an expression that I particularly dislike, this is akin to a silent Holocaust. Now, when you hear such description, first thing that comes to mind, that take is part of a outdated narrative, one that American Jewry writ large was indoctrinated with for the past half century or so. I immediately think that the person who is holding on to that hasn't been introduced to the newer research, perhaps hasn't had a chance to read Pew 2020. There's a reason why people hold on to it, and uh, it's time to let go. It has not done us any good. It's based on assumptions. It's based on the assumption that once a Jew intermarries, he, she, they cease to identify Jewishly. The new narrative on Jewish intermarriage sees it as an opportunity, understands that the meaning of intermarriage changes over time, and that gender plays a big role. Let's assume someone came to you for a therapy session, just looked at you and said, look, my daughter is about to marry a lovely man. Uh, he's not Jewish. And I want to believe that it's possible to raise Jewish children in, in this environment. Give me some tips. Well, the first thing I'd say would be mazel tov. And then I would say that as with any relationship, communication is incredibly important. And the beauty of a relationship that involves two people of different faiths or cultural backgrounds is that it's right there in front of them. And so it's a topic of conversation. A Jew and a person of another faith background have a path to travel together and to talk about what is important to each partner and how they see their future together. What will their home look like? What is important to each of their respective extended families or families of origin that they want to continue? How do they envision raising their children? And to really go in with eyes wide open and to be very candid with each other. You're saying interfaith couples actually have an advantage because they come to the table kind of sketching all of this out in advance and are much more likely to have a meaningful, mindful plan to set an action. That's exactly right. Yes. And, you know, I'm sure you've heard the expression that every marriage is an intermarriage of one form mm -hmm. or another. When we partner with another human being, we do not become one mind. There are still two minds, two histories, two families of origin. There's lots to navigate. And I definitely believe that couples combining different backgrounds do so in a, a more conscious way. Uh, and, and ultimately, they are the fruits of that. You know, I've said this before on the show. I married someone who was from a very similar Jewish background as I was. And so we never really had to talk about anything. 
it's such credit to an interfaith couple who have to say, this is what's important to me. This is where I will compromise. These are my lines. And I think at a young age to know those, to be pushed to know those lines is really, really impressive. I think we all sort of have seen intermarried couples where, you know, the non-Jewish spouse is extremely active in the synagogue. Absolutely. In our hand-wringing and our socially constructed fear of intermarriage, what we have neglected for far too long are the contributions of and the value of partners who were not raised or educated Jewishly and find their way or are partnered with the Jewish person and ultimately see, you know, the richness, the depth, the community that is Judaism and the Jewish community and think, I want in. So we've got folks who are banging at the gates, if you will. And to your point, many of them become really invested in and contribute to their congregations, their communities, to having a Jewish home, to raising Jewish children, to doing the work, if you will. Which is a form of conversion in of itself, right? I mean, it's a form of decision to say, hey, I am becoming a member of this community. Sure, you know, maybe not by some halachic standards and, and maybe even not necessarily abandoning my own faith traditions, which are still important to me, but I'm still a member of something and I'm still doing real, necessary, meaningful labor. Absolutely. And that's something that... I think we need to better appreciate and contextualize the nuance or the the gradations of one's involvement in or journey with the Jewish community, in the Jewish community, because the folks who are participating without necessarily becoming halachically Jewish are still very, very much involved. And there may be reasons beyond themselves for not technically or legally becoming Jewish, oftentimes involving their their parents who may still be alive and wanting to honor them. And um, I'm always thinking about the ways in which we encourage honoring our parents as a Jewish value, as a commandment, and, and the importance of extending that respect to people who choose not to officially become Jewish out of honor and respect for their own parents. Thank you so, so, so much. Thanks so much for having me. And P.S., I absolutely love the fact that you have a Gentile of the week. I think that's fabulous. And we absolutely should be curious about, respectful of, and honoring Gentiles. I love that Gentile of the week. That was Dr. Karen McGinnity. Her newest book comes out this summer, and it's called Hashtag Us Too, How Jewish, Muslim, and Christian Women Changed Our Communities. Our next guest is Vicki Messler. She works at a Jewish day school. She does children and family programming at a JCC. She's raising a Jewish family. She sends her kids to Jewish day school, but she herself is not Jewish. Here's our conversation with Vicki Messler. Vicki Messler, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you so much. It's great to be here with you. So will you tell us a little bit about what you do in your day job and beyond? Sure. I have been working in education for almost my whole life. And I worked with kids who were really struggling. And then I got into special education. And now I actually have merged my 
kind of love of education and special education with my interest in Judaism. And I work at a school for kids with learning challenges that is specifically focused on a Jewish education with special education support. And I live in Harlem, where there's this burgeoning and growing Jewish community without really any institutional life. So I really worked hard to develop institutional life in partnership with a number of different other people and um, a JCC. So I tried to figure out ways to create Jewish family and Jewish programming for kids because I wanted my kids to meet Jewish friends and have Jewish experiences and celebrate Rosh Hashanah, you know, alongside our neighbors. So based on all you're telling me, I imagine you grew up in a loving, firm, committed, passionate Jewish home, right? No, I grew up Catholic and I went to church every week with my mom and I went to Catholic catechism class or whatever. It was um, awful because of all of my thoughts and like fears being kind of stoked by fire and brimstone and really feeling like I didn't have a place there. But I went because if you don't go, bad things happen, you are punished. And so we went out of fear to make sure that we were insured until next week when we showed back up again right. so that we didn't die and go to hell. And then you, you meet and fall in love with a wonderful Jewish man named Avram. Correct. And surely that's when you decided to convert. Well, we were art majors, so the Catholic girl and the Jewish boy was just more like an idiosyncrasy of our relationship. Um, we were art majors, so you so can make art about it. both your parents were mad about being art everybody, majors. Everybody was mad about art major. Everybody figured we'd be destitute and also would have horrific relationship problems because we could never get married unless I converted. But my parents were very concerned. And how could this possibly work? I actually jokingly tell my mom now that like she got the best of all the deals because our family is with them for Christmas and we have time for Hanukkah and they never have to share us for like the major holidays. So I think she made out pretty well with the grandkids. All right, slow down though. I, I want to hear in, in grain length that I think this really is something that a lot of people go through these arguments uh, that both sides, your families, people who I presumably love you, said, okay, so why is this not going to work according to the Jewish side and according to the Catholic side? Well, I think the Catholic side was a little bit like, well, Jews are very insular. And at some point, and the undertone was when kids show up, mm -hmm. the Judaism will show up and you will be forced to convert because Jews want their children to be Jews and there's no room for you and who you are. And I was like, that's ridiculous. This doesn't sound like my husband at all. I mean, he was my boyfriend at the time, but we're like, we're cool. Like everything's cool. But it wasn't so easy. And I think that as we became more grown up and entered our later 20s, we started to really think about it. And it's like, well, what, would we have a Christmas tree? Like if we had kids, would we teach them about Santa? Would we have Easter egg hunts? But what about Passover? What about Hanukkah? And of course, I was like, let's do all the things because that's amazing and so fun. But there was a little bit of like, you know, discrepancy between the stories and like, well, if he's the person and the Jesus, <laughs> like, what about, you know, there Moses? There can only be one. Yeah. So the question was kind of like, how do these ideas fit together? And so we went to the JCC in Manhattan and we took a class that was designed for interfaith couples. And the facilitator was amazing, but also I think couldn't help us, any of us, get through these like detail details. So she had us frame up the thing that you couldn't for your own self give up 
and the things that you could potentially compromise on. And I was very clear with my husband from the first moment was like, I don't give two hooty hoots about Jesus. Like it's mythology and like it's an interesting story, but like it doesn't make any sense to me. It has no place in my brain. But Santa is like a really big deal. And (laughs) I don't know how to have children without magic and joy and expectation and like a little mythology and like wonder, like, how does he do it all in one? Like a little bit of that magic is really part of childhood in my mind. And I was like, how do you not do that? And so we really had that conversation. And I said, well, let's just if your grandma and grandpa celebrate something because it's meaningful to them. And when they're little, it's Christmas and a tree and cookies. And now that my kids are older, it's like this story of this really important person, Jesus of Nazareth, who was born and like it's a crazy, unlikely story. And how could you have a baby in a manger? What even is a manger? Why did the wise men come? Like, it's kind of an interesting story. But once you get over that, it's about being together and making cookies and like enjoying each other. And that's what we celebrate at my parents' house. And that's what my kids get to experience. And then we go back home and we, or we can, like at the same night, we light our Hanukkah and we sing our prayers and my parents are into it and they sing too. And we all like eat, you know, sufganyot together and and then a side of a Christmas cookie. So so you basically said like, I'm going to stay me, right? I'm, I'm, I'm who I am. But you basically committed to your kids being Jewish. I mean, I think it's so interesting because what you actually do, and we've been talking about this, you know, more of this episode is you navigate all of these these questions in any given moment. I imagine it, a lot of these things are sort of a series of choices that you make consciously every single day. I think it's just like all of the rest of parenting, which is that you have to navigate a million choices as you think about what is best for your kids and how to navigate the realities of the world and the realities of politics and the realities of school and the realities of other kids and other families and what they do and that you do like and you don't like and you see differences within. I think it's not any different than that. I think that actually speaks to why I chose a Jewish day school for my kids. I work in education. I've been in education, as I said, my whole life. And when we were thinking about schools, as my son was nearing kindergarten, I thought, well, what do I want out of a school? Yes, it could be free. But I also was thought about what is the value add if we start looking at different types of schools. And I thought about schools that had a value compass or a values component or character education as a component of the educational experience and the parent community. So I thought, who can we go to school with where my kids are going to fit in and we're going to share some set of values. And I really then thought that the only likely and probable answer was in the Jewish school community. So that's why we picked a pluralistic Jewish day school. And I stand by that decision at every pass. My husband was like, what? We're going to, we're sending the kids to Jewish day school? Like what? He went to Jewish day school. He was just shocked. I was like, Of course we are, because everybody is on the same page about parenting. We share values. This is huge when it comes to all of the trials and tribulations that your kid will go through. So I'm going to play dumb, and I'm going to ask a question that I know that you've been asked by fellow dim people. So if you like it so much, why why wouldn't you marry it? Well, you already married it. Why don't you convert? I mean, you work at the Jewish day school. You send your kids to a Jewish day school. You're one of the most involved, engaged, mindful people I know about all things Jewish life. Was there not a point in which you thought, you know what? Hold my beer. (laughs) I'm going in. (laughs) 
there were points in my life where I absolutely considered it and researched it. The first being, I think I was pregnant with my son, who's now 12, and we went to go see a rabbi who was explaining the conversion process through their shul. And it was a really interesting conversation. And then at some point, as we were wrapping up, he handed me basically a one sheet of the 613 laws of Judaism. And he was like, and part of the study is really understanding these laws and really digging deep into them and to the meaning of them and agreeing to them. And you're like, what? I can't mix wool with linen? Fuck that. I'm out. (laughs) So I said, okay, cool. And I looked at the one sheet and, you know, like the linen, I was like, that's weird, but I, I don't know. And the shellfish, I was like, okay, you know, I get it. But some of them were so obviously 4,000 years old. And I was like, I don't even have goats. Like, what is, what am I going to do? Like, what do you mean agree to this? And he was like, well, just, you know, you agree. And I was like, but what do you mean agree? And it, it just, this, it just seemed so nonsensical I mean, to me. I, I, Hold on. The assumption being the Jews agree on things? That was the process. I had to agree. And I said, okay, so I could like pretend to agree and then not actually do most of these. But what am I really converting to? Am I converting to pretend that I agree to something that doesn't make any sense? Am I converting so that other people will be happy and feel like I'm actually Jewish enough? Or am I converting because this actually has a meaningful movement of me from one thing to another? And I It just didn't make sense. So fast forward, I'm like currently much more deep in a Jewish life. And my son is actually studying for a bar mitzvah. And we found like a program that actually calls it a B mitzvah because they degenderized it. I spoke to the rabbi and I said, do you guys do conversions? Like, because I'm kind of curious about, you know, how with bar mitzvah, you are asking the kids to really design this rite of passage experience and really define for themselves what entering a Jewish community and entering a Jewish life as a leader means and how to show that in this ceremony. Couldn't we do that for conversion? And he was like, oh, yeah, I totally do that. But I call it integration. My mind was blown because that change of language for me was so significant because my whole life was stuck on the word convert. Like, what do we mean convert? I'm going to be this. And then I convert to this other thing. Like, that doesn't make any sense. But integration means how do you integrate the understanding of Judaism, the study of Judaism, the practices of Judaism, the the community of Judaism into your life in some sort of meaningful way? And what does that mean for you? Um, And I find that thrilling. That's beautiful. You're in Jewish settings a lot. I I don't want to you know, get too personal, but like, do you ever feel like people are judging you or writing you off or something? Like, do you have, do you feel like you have to prove something to people? I think my kids struggle with it a little more because I think that they never quite feel as Jewish as the other kids. And um, I get teased a little bit because I know absolutely zero Hebrew. And the kids are like, well, no wonder I got a 70 on the test because you don't know any Hebrew. Like, how am I supposed to learn it? But I think that they have to hide a little bit of the Christmas or only tell certain kinds of kids But I think that they are feeling more and more comfortable because we also have a Jewish community in Harlem. We also have other Jewish families that we celebrate Shabbat with. And the Jewish is enough in many of the places where we have community. So I think that owning that and seeing that there's other people very similar to us and even you know, you could argue less Jewish than us or even farther from the Jewish that we practice 
And it's fine. Like everybody's in and it's totally cool. And I just think that it's really lovely for my kids to grow up knowing that Judaism can be a lot of different things for different people and especially at different times of their lives because Judaism is something that you grow into in my mind. Vicki Messler, thank you for all you do for the Jewish community. It's really, it's just an honor and a privilege to, to talk with you and to learn from you. Our next guest was once fueled by oysters, but is no longer. As listeners of the show know, Liel has been on his own journey of observance. One thing we have not heard, though, is how his wife, Lisa Ann Sandel, has felt about that journey, what it felt like to have that journey announced very suddenly. They had a conversation on Rabbi Dova Bishevkin's 1840 podcast about it. I thought it was super important to bring part of that to you now. I remember very distinctly, Biel and I went out for dinner, an Italian restaurant that we both loved and had formerly shared many dishes that were not kosher. And he said to me, I'm thinking of keeping kosher. Shock. And then my mind started to spin through all of these possibilities, and it felt very apocalyptic, like he's going to start becoming observant in this way that is very foreign to me and that I'm really not comfortable with. How could we possibly continue to be compatible if our lifestyles are diverging so dramatically? Oh, it was very evident <laughs> by her reaction that she was not too amused. But yeah, I mean, when, when I brought it up, my Pro I don't want to call it a process. It would be dignifying it with some semblance of thought and structure, which I think all true conversions, all true processes of teshuva don't happen that way, right? They're, they're chaotic, emotionally raw, gooey, difficult processes. So I wasn't really thinking about it. I mean, I was just very absorbed by this thing that I was going through and that was going through me. I was sort of happy to share it and understood right away. Apocalyptic. Right. Honestly, a part of it had to do with a much more innate inner calling. Just feeling something inside, you know, f going to this restaurant and feeling, it's not right for me to order the prosciutto. Uh, why? I haven't a clue. This was before study. This was before Davin. This is before everything. I just, you know, went and felt like, this is something that my soul is calling out to me to do. Stop doing that. I paid very close attention to it. That was the beginning. <laughs> it was the beginning and the end. That was it. There you have it. Hey, will we be having the shrimp scampi? Like, nope. It was a long dinner. So we used to share food. I just remember feeling very uncomfortable. We ordered vegetarian dishes. I felt uncomfortable ordering treif. That passed over time. That passed. For the record, now I keep kosher, but we can get to that. Don't reveal. Don't spoil the ending. <laughs> Spoiler alert. 
But for years, I did not hesitate to order Trafe in front of Liel. I was very upset. I shut down. I did not ask him questions about like what prompted this. You know, in retrospect, I wish I had had more presence of mind to be more empathetic and curious and loving, frankly. But I was so freaked out. First, uh, I did my best to register the completely legitimate emotional shock that this caused. I believe very firmly in Darche Noam and that I thought that any kind of observance that upset the family dynamic and that tried to assert itself on other people without their being emotionally, without them being emotionally ready for it was just not my way. I feel that this was not, I was not successful at communicating it. At which point, frankly, feeling Lisa's very intense combination of anxiety and closeness I joked before, you know, I said feeling like a Murano, but that's pretty much how I felt for some years. Like I should study and daven and do this entire process completely privately and completely in secret, away away from anyone else's prying eyes. If I knew that I had to pray shachos, I was like, I'll do it when I'm alone. I'll do it when I'm alone in the house. Uh, if I knew that I had to, not had to, wanted to study, you know, I was like, okay. Well, you know, it's 11.30 at night, Lisa's asleep. Now it's time to open the safer and sit down and, and learn something. What's that on your arm? Nothing? <laughs> no, I knew. I knew. And I, I would say, Liel, that while my reaction sucked, I don't think you were... Much better. I mean, I think he was rightfully very hurt by my reaction. And I think he withdrew and stopped trying to talk to me about it very, very quickly. Like, it didn't take a lot. I admit to that wholeheartedly. I think that's correct. And I don't think that you really made an attempt to explain anything to me. You just said, I'm going to keep kosher. And that was it. <laughs> I think that's true. Although, you know, honestly, again, in my defense, again, I'm a decade in. If you ask me to explain, it is so incredibly difficult for me to tell you what had happened. I have an easy answer, but it's probably not the correct one from, from Lisa's perspective. My, my, my answer is, you know, my answer is Hashem. I, I, yeah, felt hurt. Yeah, probably withdrew too quickly. Yeah, went very far uh, on my own, but never stopped. N never stopped with the process. Never, never stopped being present and, and open for, for it, for observance, for Yiddishkeit, for love of all things Jewish. And I think it has less, or let me rephrase, nothing to do with me and everything to do with the incredible, uncontestable value, right, of, of Judaism. I think eventually, um, not just Lisa, but also our children found themselves independently, perhaps despite uh, of, of me or in spite of me, not because of me, drawn to it. And fast forward some years, here we are, we all keep kosher now. We never said to the kids, you must, you may not order, you know, the lobster roll. Uh, it was very important to us that it be an independent choice that they make out of love. Um, and they're still young. And I can't tell you how happy and proud I am that they both made it independently. Sam, we're going to give up these things that we know, the Tom, the taste that we know and absolutely love because we understand there's a greater calling. That, that Judaism and observance prefers a greater calling. Was it again... In spite of me rather than because of me? Probably. I think Hashem. 
I would say that the reason we were able to sustain this marriage and, and relationship as you were going through this this process is not just because of Hashem, although I guess ultimately it is because of Hashem, but also it was the huge amount of love oh, and sure. goodwill oh, <laughs> that we feel for each other and, and the like strength of this marriage that right, was that there explain, from the get-go but but how does that i could not agree more obviously but how does that i don't, explain I don't your think journey? it's obvious i worked very hard for years to overcome the anxiety that this caused me because it was really all about anxiety i was anxious that if we started to keep shabbat then we couldn't go travel to see my parents or my parents would think we were weird or we wouldn't be able to eat with my parents or our friends would think we were weird. Right. right. Well, my friends already think I'm weird, so that's <laughs> not, never a problem for me. Right. So I, I really, I thought about this for years and, and really just worked at it. I did do meditation. I did do therapy. I did pray. I did talk to Liel a lot. We talked a lot. I do ask him a lot of questions now. And again, to be honest, I feel in the context of our marriage, and it's ironic since so much of what I do publicly is talk about faith. And I feel like I was completely useless to you, as, you know, precisely because my own path has been so, you know, you're not useless. So I mean, you weren't, so, you weren't useless yeah. because you've always been the man I love, the man I admire and respect and, you know, think the world of. Once I was able to sort of work through that anxiety, I could look to you as, I don't I guess, a beacon almost. we shared a letter from a self-proclaimed aspiring Jew, someone who was going through the process of conversion and wondering if she'd ever be Jewish enough. Here's Liel reading that letter. Hey, Unorthodox. I am 27 and I was raised with zero religion and I had no attachments to any faith outside of some resentment towards Christianity from experience throughout young adulthood. But I love the way Judaism places so much emphasis on the here and now, offers a million ways to ritualize life and make ordinary moments holy. I love the intellectual honesty that exudes from every book I have read so far about Judaism. I always desired a deeper connection to faith, but seeing as I couldn't honestly commit myself to blind faith in Christ, I didn't see that ever happening for me until Judaism. However, there is a guilt that comes with not wanting to convert to Orthodox Judaism. My fiance is Jewish and was raised loosely Reformed, though recently we've both become more interested in dabbling in observance and have been attending a conservative synagogue. In my mind, if he eats a BLT, he's of course still Jewish and could go about that journey in his own way. But if I eat pork, struggle with awkward vulnerability of praying aloud, let alone don't plan to cover my hair once I get married or go to the mikvah every month, etc., am I just converting to the parts of Judaism that I pick and choose? I know many people, especially in the United States, would welcome me into the fold despite not converting Orthodox, but there is a level of what I guess you could call cognitive dissonance about this. I want to do it right and respect the tradition I've come to love, but if I'm not willing to go 
all in in terms of observance. How can I come to terms with not feeling like a fraud? Or should there be a higher standard that converts hold themselves to in terms of observance? And if so, what are they? Thank you, Anonymous. After receiving that letter, we knew we had to talk to this listener. So Anonymous, welcome to the show. Who are you? Tell us who you are. My name is Missy Findyson. I live in Austin, Texas, and I am engaged to someone who is Jewish. And we've kind of both started to dabble in our Judaism or our, our potential Judaism. It was honestly spurred by a lot of things, but I think in particular, <laughs> a trip to New York. We visited a synagogue. I didn't really think anything would come of it, but a lot of conversations have been had since then between us, and it's just been kind of a journey since then. There is something that you hit on in your letter, which is so fascinating, which is that, you know, your fiance who was raised, you know, loosely reform and maybe not super involved. Jewish. Jewish. The stakes somehow seem higher for you as someone who wasn't born into this, um, who is living this and making this conscious choice every single day. How do you deal with that? You know, I know that a lot of born Jews will go through this in their day-to-day life, which does bring me some sense of peace. I don't feel the need to be perfect, but I do have this sense of if I can't pass up bacon or shellfish or something like bare bones, how committed am I really? I ponder that a lot. I think it's great that you do, because I think in a way you're you're actually sort of pondering the essential question of Judaism, not to spoil the story for those of our listeners who have yet to read the good book, but at the kind of crucial moment, the story of the Exodus, right? We all convert to Judaism because truth be told, there are three things that you really need to do to be considered Jewish. One is if you're male to have a bris at eight days, which is something that most of us <laughs> hopefully only do once in a lifetime. The second is to partake in the ritual of, of the Paschal Lamb sacrifice, which is something that we symbolically do at the Seder once a year. And the third is to, you know, keep the mitzvot, which is something that we all grapple with every single day. So kind of in a weird and non-trivial way, and not just metaphorically speaking, we all struggle with the exact same struggle you were describing. We all choose to convert to Judaism once in a lifetime, once a year or if we're doing it right every single day. And I think it's not just about saying like, oh, well, if I'm not willing to accept performa this baseline of like, well, I can't even give up shellfish and bacon, so how good am I really? But rather to say like, no, I'm, I'm entering it with precisely the correct mindset, which is the mindset of wrestling with it, which is the mindset of saying like, I know I'm going to be called upon to make a lot of choices. I also know that some of these choices may fall squarely in the heart of things that feel great and and truly hit on the core of the religious commandments. And I also know that a bunch of those are going to be very difficult for me. They may take months, years, and they may never materialize. I think that's kind of the essence of Judaism. I mean, to me, the most amazing thing about the mitzvot is there are 613 of them. It is literally impossible. They're designed so that no one person could actually keep them all because mitzvot are not Pokemon. Like you can't collect them all. You know, you have to understand that some of them are deliberately obtruse. Some of them are very difficult. Some of them only apply to a specific period in time where the temple stood. And you have to ask yourself, well, what does that still mean to me? That is not to say, chas that we each have some mandate to say, like, well, I'm going to pick and choose. It's not, you know, a buffet. But it is to say that it is an invitation precisely to do what, what it seems to me that you're doing 
more mindfully and more directly and more with, with more intelligence and candor than, than many, 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 many of us, which is to say, yeah, I'm here for the struggle. It is also like a tribe of people. And so it feels like there's a little bit of a struggle with, you know, to be doing things in the way that other Jews are doing them in my area, in my time that I live in. And in particular, my fiance and his family, the way they do things, like it means a lot to me to be in that bubble of people. And so even if I kind of intellectually might view some of what they're doing is, I don't really think that's what Judaism says based on these books that I've read or whatever, but like, is that more important than participating in Jewish life with other real actual people? Since at least Ruth, Jews by choice have been tasking us and leading our people forward by leading by example. And so I think, you know, you have an, a really interesting opportunity here as you sort of approach these questions mindfully in a way that many of us who are born into this don't really have, you know, the wherewithal or the opportunity or the presence of mind to do. If you think of Judaism as a set of restrictions or laws that must be obeyed or else, it's already kind of playing the game a little bit wrong. These are amazing, beautiful mysteries to be beheld. And there are only two ways or, or, or two kind of key pieces of advice that I think you need to keep in mind as you do it. The first is that there is actually no substitute to doing. This is something that took me most of my adult life to figure out because for most of my adult life, I was like, fuck it. You know, Hashem doesn't really care what I eat. Like, it's ridiculous. Like, you're telling me that the almighty being is looking down at my BLT and be like, very bad, Leibowitz, I shall smite you. No. Uh, but then once you actually start doing it, you understand this great logic of Naseh Nishma, right? We'll, we'll do first and then we'll hear, as the Israelites said when they received the Torah. Because actions really do speak louder than words and because the transformation that happens to you when you actually go ahead and do stuff is miraculous and no amount of rational, reasonable thinking would ever lead you there, especially with Kashrut. Like, why do we keep Kashrut? The honest answer, rabbinically speaking, is we don't know. It is a divine mystery set to trigger in us a whole host of spiritual mechanisms that can only be triggered by doing this, which leads me to the second point or the second kind of piece of advice, which I think is remembering, which is really hard sometimes for Jews, that the purpose of this is joy. And the connection that you feel when, when you're totally aligned with your maker is such a profound sense of happiness. And to try to look for that in your religious observance, to try to ask, like, how does that get me to the point where I'm really elated? I'm feeling moved. I'm feeling transformed. That's sort of the point of it all. These are really, really good signposts to a happy place. And too often we forget that. Look, we, we all grapple with it like literally every day. You, you sit there, yeah. you know, even if you're keeping kosher and it's second nature to you. And if you eat at non-kosher restaurants and, you know, as I do uh, and only get a salad or something. And then the table next to you receives this like amazing plate of like veal milanese. And you're like, oh, why? But that's part of the point. I mean, the daily struggle, which makes you happier, which makes you more confident, which makes you think about who you are and your convictions. Think about it. Like how many of us actually have a daily opportunity to stop and ask the seminal question amid all the rush, amid all the emails and the phone calls and the to-dos and errands and chores and everything, to stop and think, I'm sorry, who am I? What, what do I believe in? What matters in the world? Like, this is an amazing opportunity to stop and say, yeah, I am now making this conscious decision to say, um, no, thank you to the oysters. I will have, you know, this kasha varnish gets, please. 
it's just profound. I also am always so moved by the fact that, you know, a lot of Jews learned about Judaism in Hebrew school when they were like 10, right? And they maybe weren't paying attention and they maybe have not engaged since then. And then for you, you are actually learning this now as a fully formed adult who is very thoughtful and and actually it's like fresh in your mind and it's it animates you. And I feel like what you said earlier, this idea that you're like, you guys are, you know, you're not doing that right, right? Like there's this way in which you sort of know things probably better than your fiance does. You probably know more than he does right now, right? I mean, I have gotten scolded for trying to juice-flame him about it. <laughs> 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 I mean, like, totally, it's totally fair. I, I, By the way, so Jewish. Right. Missy, thank you so much for talking to us and for, you know, thinking and feeling and uh, welcome home. Thank you both. Baruch Hashem. So that was it. That was our conversion episode. And and because it is Shavuot, the time when the Israelites received the Torah, I think it's time for us to receive our new podcast co-host. Liel, what do you think? We, we have prayed to Hashem and he has delivered onto us a new host who is sitting right here in the flesh. How should we introduce? I feel like I'm not quite done with the trivia yet. I really enjoyed it. And so maybe we'll just like ask him a few trivia questions. All right. So so we know you could balance a broomstick and we've heard you lane beautifully. And we were very impressed that you just did it. Uh, let's ask him more questions. Stephanie, what you got? Important. What's your favorite color? I'm going to go with green. What's your favorite season? I enjoy the spring. And your favorite seasoning? Would have to be cumin. And your first ever movie role? A Few Good Men. Five words. Three of them yes, two of them sir. (laughs) Which is very apropos, because I imagine a Shavuot-themed version in which you say, you want the Book of Ruth? You You can't can't handle handle the Book of Ruth. Ruth. So tell us, please, who you are. Uh, Long-time listener, first-time caller, Joshua Molina. Yay! Thank you for having me. Very excited. Joshua Molina. For the record, we really only had one choice on the list of names. And here you are. Well, we this, are. Would, this then this would mark the first time I've ever been cast first, <laughs> is and, it, and is not that, taken a role that on. someone else is passed. That, is that on. actually? Yeah, I, well, su- I, was, I assume so. Every time I get work, at least as an actor, yeah, I assume two, three, four, five, ten people have said. <laughs> I was no. about to say we we called John Hamm first, but he's a little bit busy. But here we are. As but seriously, that there is not a case that you know of in which people said, "Okay, look, this is." A job. I find that so hard to believe. There are instances of my friend Aaron Sorkin casting me before offering the role to anyone else. I'm his Nepo baby. <laughs> <laughs> and now you're ours. Yeah. By the way, I'm sorry, but like, what an amazing relationship to have with someone because you read this role, be like, Aaron, do you really think I'm this neurotic, obnoxious? <laughs> like, do you do that? Do you read a role? Charmingly nebby. Yeah, except right. I find he, he generally makes me smarter and nicer than I am. I never <laughs> thought about it as, uh, I think I'm the neurotic part I actually bring to the role. Fantastic. We are so delighted to have you on the universe's already leading and soon to be leading-er Jewish podcast. This is what I do, actually, is I join uh, things that are already a big hit. <laughs> I, I, I did it with the West Wing. I'm doing it with Leopoldstadt and now with Unorthodox. We're so glad to have you. Obviously, you are a distinguished actor currently appearing on You're saying old. Uh, mature. That's how I, when I hear distinguished. <laughs> distinguished. No, I just yes, mean that. Yes, my hair like, is gray. You've had quite a career and then you sort of pivoted while still acting to podcasting. You you co-hosted the West Wing Weekly. You co-hosted Chutzpah with Rabbi Shira Stutman. 
And now you're here with us, and we are just so excited to welcome you um, onto the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm, I couldn't be more excited. We would have a lot of opportunities, Emirates Hashem, uh, to banter, to speak, to ask questions, uh, to raise controversies like whether or not we should wrap our leftovers in, in tinfoil, saran wrap, or Tupperware. Also, uh, whether cumin really is the best seasoning, because I'm already, have, I have a little bit of an issue there. You think it's too smelly? It's what would be lot. your, what's your go-to seasoning? Nothing. Nothing. Wow. <laughs> bland. That is a bland answer. Like, yeah. <laughs> bland and Jewish is how I like it. Um, uh, just Ashkenazi. You know, you're, you're taking too <laughs> that, that would just be salt. Yeah. Salt, yeah. Um, are there any questions that we could answer as we welcome you in, into the fold? Oh, no, I showed up without questions. You don't have uh, no, to. No, I'm ready. I'm, 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 I'm going to jump right in. Although I, I'm, I, I anticipate that as we plan to talk about certain things, I will do some research and make sure <laughs> that I have some idea of Well, it's uh, kind of like what when I'm, we realized with our Gentile of the Week question that if we just ask them in advance, we have much better answers. Right. <laughs> like for the beginning few episodes, they were just asking us cold, like we didn't know what they were going to ask. Why so do now, you a bris? Uh, now we're like, Ooh. Uh, so now, uh, now we prepare. So Joshua, your first official episode with Unorthodox will be next week, May 25th. And we're also doing a really, really fun event to welcome you to the show, to welcome our listeners to you, to, to celebrate Leopold Schott, this Tony-nominated Broadway show you're in. And the so, Jewiest show on Jewy Broadway. Which yes. I've it's a bit of a competition, seen. though. There is parade. Yes, this is a big <laughs> parade. There was a play called The Wanderers, which is now closed. But it's, uh, it's uh, Jewish theater it's on Jewish Broadway season. is uh, thriving. So yeah. our- I'm, I'm, I'm going to let you finish. Funny girl. <laughs> but Leopold Schott's <laughs> the juiciest show on town. Forgot about Funny Girl. And Unorthodox is actually hosting a special night at Leopold Schott for our listeners on June 22nd. We have a bunch of orchestra seats all together. And after the show, Liel and I are doing a Q&A on stage with you, Joshua, just for our listeners. It's a fundraiser for us, and your ticket gets you a seat at the show, access to the post-event chat, and a bunch of special Unorthodox swag. Our listeners can go to bit.ly slash UO Broadway. That's unorthodox Broadway, but, you know, shortened. And they could sign up and it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, so I'm really, really looking forward to that. We're going to grill you. Bring it. Bring it. Okay, it's time for mazel tubs. It's the end of the show. Let's do it. I have a mazel tub to my beloved sister-in-law and brother-in-law, Sarah Silver and David Silver. They just welcomed a baby girl, Abigail Ivy Silver, or as Edith calls her, Abby Gabby. Oh. Congratulations. We're so, so, so excited. Okay, hey. so that's how it goes. Can you, gotcha. Do you think you could do yeah, that? Yes, I have a mazel tov for uh, my castmate and fellow member of the tribe, Brandon Uranowitz, who's been nominated for Best Featured Actor in a Play. God willing, will win a Tony soon enough. Amazing. Soon by him. Inshallah. And I, naturally, have a mazel tov to you. Oh. Jo- what's your Hebrew name? Yaakov Yeshaya. Ben Ruven Shlomovitz Zipora. <laughs> to you, I mean, Yaakov you, you Ben Ruven Shlomovitz Zipora, Melina. It is such a pleasure. Baruch haba. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, with Liel Leibovitz. And starting next week, Joshua Molina. Amen. Vaidaber Elohim El Moshe. Vayomer Elav Ani Adonai. Quinn Waller and Ellie Blyer. And our team includes Courtney Hazlett, Tanya Singer, and Daron Ruskay. Administrative support from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. 
You can follow Unorthodox on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and get your Unorthodox swag at tabletstudios.com. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our logo and swag is designed by Jenny Rosbrook. And our theme song is by Golem. Send us emails and voicemails at unorthodox at tabamag.com. Leave us a message on our listener line at 914-570-4869. And send us snail mail at P.O. Box 20079, New York, New York, 10001. Wherever you are on your journey, shalom, friends. Amazing. So I guess see you next week. Wow. All right. Le- Le- I have to go now. <laughs> yeah, can you get out of here? Oh, I was, uh, I'm really enjoying this.